Today's scripture reading is from Hebrews 4, verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. This is the living word of God for us today. Amen. Amen and good morning. My dad was a pilot, which was pretty cool for a kid growing up. And I remember he was able to take me up uh, into the airplane several times and be in the cockpit, kind of be the co-pilot with him. And he would show me around the cockpit, point out the different gauges and let me, you know, take controls a little bit, you know, not go crazy. A little bit of a left bank, a little bit of a right bank. And one of the lessons I remember from that is him teaching me how important it is as a pilot to trust your gauges. It's always important, but it's particularly important when you're flying in conditions where you can't see anything outside the window, which honestly is pretty frequent as a pilot. You can be in thick cloud cover, could be dark at night, you're flying through a storm, you can't see anything, can't see the ground, can't see what else is out there. You have to trust your instruments. I remember him telling me that pilots have to go through a special certification just to be able to fly in those kinds of conditions. It's called instrument flight rules, IFR. You can't even go up on a cloudy day or in certain conditions above certain altitudes unless you have IFR certification. Now, what was interesting is I remember thinking, well, even if you can't see, you can still feel when the airplane turns. You, you can feel that. Think about even in airliners we're on today. You can feel it when the pilot goes into a right bank or a left bank or increases in altitude or, or decreases. But what's interesting is he said, your mind has a way of tricking you after a while. You initially feel the turn, but then, you know, your equilibrium, you know, equalizes, whatever they would call that, and now it doesn't feel like you're in a turn anymore. So you could be in a right bank or a left bank, or you could be descending, and you will not feel it at all after a period of time. This is what uh, they call spatial disorientation. So you can think you're going straight and level, and you're actually in a, a pretty steep bank to the right or the left. So to deal with this problem, one of the instruments in the cockpit is called the attitude indicator. I've got a picture that we'll put on the screen. Also sometimes referred to as the artificial horizon. Everybody's seen this. So, you know, you can see if you're seeing that in the cockpit, you're in a, a little bit of a, of, a, of a turn there, maybe, you know, losing a bit of altitude potentially in that turn. Um, by the way, I love that title, Attitude Indicator. I was just thinking they should invent that for our kids. That would come in really handy right now for us. Uh, so you're a pilot, you're flying along, you can't see out the window because you're in a cloud or it's dark at night, you know, can't see up from down, but your attitude indicator will tell you where you're heading. Now, in an airplane, just as in life, we must declare something as our horizon. We have to have a guiding instrument. What's interesting about aviation is hundreds of airplane crashes, and literally no exaggeration, have resulted from airplanes that are functioning perfectly well, but the pilot was not looking at his or her gauges. And they could no longer trust their own instincts, their own feel for where the airplane was going. This is also true in our lives. We must choose something external to us to be our horizon. And you only have two options, really, if you think about it. If it's not something external, it's going to be something internal. It's going to be your own instincts. It's going to be your own feel for what's up, what's down, what's right, what's wrong. As followers of Jesus, our guiding instrument is the Word of God. 
And so this morning, as Carl mentioned, we start this two-week series called Word Centered. And it's the first of our five core values. And we'll put our core values on the screen. We're only gonna focus on one this morning, but I wanna remind you what our core values here are. You can't miss them, you know? It's like the biggest font I think we could have chosen. We are word-centered, spirit-dependent, better together, courageously real, not about ourselves. If you're new to fellowship, you're just kind of getting used to what kind of church this is, these values will help answer some of the question. What kind of church is this? Well, these are the things that we try to live out. Now, our hope would be that this first core value, word-centered, like all the others, would not just be something that's true of the institution of fellowship, but would be true of the people of fellowship. And that's true for all these. But this morning, we're going to focus on value number one, word-centered. We'll do two weeks on this. Then we're going to, for the rest of the summer, focus on the book of Psalms and work through a number of the Psalms together. And at some point down the road, maybe six months, a year from now, we'll come back and we'll do another one of these uh, values. Just every now and then, it's good to keep them front and center of who we are as a church. Let me give you our definition of what we mean by word-centered so that you know what that is, because obviously that could mean different things to different people or different churches. Here's what we mean by word-centered. We'll put this definition on the screen. Because God has revealed himself through the written word and the living word, we align our lives to the authority of scripture and place Jesus at the center of all we are and everything we do. And you see some scripture passages there that reinforce that. Uh, there's a number more that we could have put on the screen. One of those, Hebrews 4.12, is our text for this morning that you heard Aaron read a couple of minutes ago. So this is what we mean by being a word-centered church. And so I'm gonna unpack this a little bit more this morning. We're gonna take a deep dive into Hebrews 4.12, one of my very favorite verses about the Bible in the Bible. Um, but before I do that, I, I want to show you one more thing, some additional words that we've written that answer the question, well, what does it look like for us to live out this value? So that's what we call our demonstrated by statements. Here's what it looks like for us as a church to be word-centered. Placing ourselves under the authority of God's word for all decisions and direction, making Bible teaching a central component of every ministry area, utilizing an expository approach as a primary means of preaching. That just means we're going to read a verse or three or five or 10, and then we're going to explain the verses. We're going to teach what the word means, and then we're going to apply it. That's what expository teaching is. Equipping people to engage God's word in their personal lives and pointing people to Jesus through every book of the Bible, because we believe he is the center. Every verse in scripture finds its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ. So that's what we mean when we say we're a word-centered church. Now, this value, word-centered, shapes everything we do at Fellowship. I want to give you an example of a recent change we made several months back that some of you, hopefully all of you, noticed. We now, as a part of our service every Sunday morning, we now have someone read the scripture aloud right before myself or Lloyd gets up here and preach. Now, why do we make that small change? We, we wanted, at the center point of the service, just to hear God's word Proclaim. We wanted to kind of give it the spotlight, front and center of the service, and then we're going to teach it right after that. And we have this little tagline that comes after the reading on the screens. This is the living word of God for us today. Now, I don't know of any other church that uses this exact tagline. Other churches you know, say other things after a scripture reading. This is what we've chosen. This is what we've written to say. And it comes from Hebrews 4.12. And so this morning, as I teach Hebrews 4.12, we're going to keep this in the top of your mind because we're going to answer the question, what does it mean for it to be the living word of God for us today? And what does it mean for us 
if it's true that it's the living word of God for us today. And I'll go ahead and tell you now, it has massive implications. If it's true that this is the living word of God for us today. So if you haven't already, let's turn to Hebrews chapter four, verse 12. Part of the luxury of only having one verse to look at this morning is we're gonna be able to, to dig deeply into it. Um, and I've been excited to teach this message for a long time. So if you sense me talking fast, it's, you know, I'll try to slow down, but it's just because I have a lot of energy. And, and unapologetically, one of my goals this morning is to infect you with some energy and passion and love for God's word. So Hebrews 4.12, I'll read it again. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and a marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. We're gonna find two main ideas from this one verse. Idea number one, God's word is living and active. Living and active. Uh, those two words, living, active, work together to describe the same thing. Li living literally means alive. It's the opposite of dead. God's word's alive, you see. Active comes from the Greek word for energy, and it essentially means it, it works, it moves. It, it, so it's alive, therefore it's on the move. It works, it accomplishes things. It does, not just is. The word itself is alive. It's not just that the word of God is a tool that living people and living things can pick up and apply and put to work. That's certainly true, but the word itself has some life to it and it accomplishes things. It's a little mysterious. What in the world does this mean? I like the way the Amplified Version says it. For the word that God speaks is alive and full of power, active, operative, energizing, and effective. I think those are good descriptors of that idea of it's living and active. Now, we don't tend to think of scripture this way. We don't tend to think of this book as alive. We don't t tend to think of this book as, as on the move somehow. It's old. It's ancient. And when we think about what it contains, we think, well, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a collection of moral principles. We think um, it's a record of historical events, particularly the Jewish faith and the Christian faith. You might think of it this way. It's a collection of theological doctrines. All those are true. And yet to only think of scripture that way is dramatically small compared to the vision taught in Hebrews 4.12, that it's alive, that it's on the move, that it's accomplishing things. In fact, I'd say having a very small view of scripture is one of the reasons that we spend so little time in it. If all you think is in here is, you know, historical religious documents and theology and doctrine, it's no wonder that we don't pick it up. It's no wonder that we rarely spend time in God's word. When the writer of Hebrews says it's living and active, he's saying the words of scripture don't just describe God, don't just describe the actions of God, they somehow embody the presence of God and the work of God are somehow embodied actualized in the word of God. How is this so? What are you saying? Are you saying the Bible is somehow a part of the Trinity? No, by, by no means. We don't worship the word. We worship the God. But according to Hebrews 4.12, there's something about this word that's alive and on the move. I think this is a fascinating concept and it's worth taking a, a bit of a, a dive into it even a little bit more. I, I wanna talk first about the living part of God's word, which is essentially the presence of God through the word. 
And then I wanna talk about the activity of God, which is the work of God through the word. Let's start with the presence. The presence of God in the scripture. Think about it this way. In the Old Testament, the thing that separated the Hebrew people from all other nations was God was present with them. He chose them as his people and he was their God. Have you ever thought about in what way was God present with his people? Well, certainly there are a few visual manifestations. You know, in the wilderness, there was a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. There's the Ark of the Covenant where his presence was seated between the, the cherubim on the top of the Ark of the Covenant. But more often than not, in the scripture, it was said that God was present with his people through the word of God. The law given to Moses, the word of the Lord spoken through the prophets. So if you're a Hebrew person in the Old Testament, if you were asked, how is it that God is with you? You would say, we know God is with us because God speaks to us. But he wasn't speaking audibly primarily. He was speaking through his word. He was speaking through the law of Moses, speaking through the prophets. It reminded me of another story when I was young. When I was very young, I was a little bit afraid of the dark. And I remember occasionally growing up, the power would go out in our home at nighttime. And when you're a little bit afraid of the dark, the power goes out. It can be a bit of a, a recipe for fear. And, and I remember I'd, I'd try to find my parents. You know, I couldn't see it. I'd try to find them. Where, where are they? And, and more often than not, I would find them by listening for their voice, by hearing them speak. And, and they would you know, remind me, it's okay. The power just went off. It's gonna come back on. Remind me, here's where you can find the flashlight, et cetera. I knew they were there through their words. In a very similar way, all throughout the Old Testament, the primary expression of God's presence was his word. Words spoken to the people through the law, through the prophets. Now we get to the New Testament and an amazing thing happens. As John says in John 1.14, the word became flesh and lived among us. Isn't this interesting? So the word of God primarily experienced through, or the presence of God rather, primarily experienced through the word of God. Now the presence of God in the flesh in Jesus Christ, who is the word incarnate or the word come to life, the word embodied. Now fast forward 2,000 years, we don't have the word incarnate that we can see and touch like the people of the first century did with Jesus Christ. He's not with us. He's at the right hand of the Father. We can't see him right now, but he left us his spirit, the spirit of Christ that indwells us, and we still have the word of God. So we have not only the Old Testament, we have the New Testament, literally the words of Jesus himself and the words of the the early um, leaders of the church inspired by the Holy Spirit. So we experience the presence of God through the word of God as well just as the Hebrew people did. Here's the idea. God's word has always been and continues to be a primary expression of his presence. You don't just learn about God. You somehow experience the presence of God through his word. And, and it's, there's mystery in here, but that's clearly the way the Bible would describe the presence of God being expressed through his word. The word of God is also, this is number two, a primary means of his work. So it's an expression of his presence. It's a primary means of his work. So it's not only living, it's also active. It accomplishes things. Think about all that God has accomplished by speaking words. He spoke creation into being. 
he formed the nation of Israel through the words of a covenant or a promise that he made. He directed and corrected his people through words spoken through prophets. In scripture, for God to act and God to speak are often one and the same thing. That's how the scripture expresses the work of God. It's often God said, and it was. God spoke, and this was his activity. By the way, one of the ways as human beings that we reflect the image of God is through the gift that we have of language. And this, isn't it fascinating what we have available to us as human beings? The power of words. We can also create with words. We can also work with words. Many of you in the room, you work through words. Meetings, emails. Some of you are songwriters. Some of you are, the, a lot of us in the room, our primary works through words. All of us, when it comes to our families, our marriages, our friendships, our relationships, the, the primary way that those relationships are being built up or torn down, words. If this sounds familiar to you, we talked about this in James, you know, the power of the tongue. It's not just passive information exchanging between two individuals. There's actually things happening. There's work being done for good or for evil, even more so when you're talking about the word of the almighty God. And every word in this text is purposeful. If he accomplishes things with his words and his word is alive, then it's still doing work. It's still bringing people to faith. It's still leading and guiding and correcting and forming and shaping. The word of God is alive. So here's where we've come so far. God's word is living and God's word is active. In other words, it's a primary expression of his presence on earth and a primary means of his work on earth. By the way, those two things are held together by the Holy Spirit. Word and spirit go together in, in a unique and remarkable way throughout the scripture. Um, here's a way to think about it. The spirit of God, you know, according to, to 2 Timothy 3.16, the spirit of God breathed out the words of scripture through the human authors. The inspiration of the spirit is the word of God. And now today, the same spirit enlivens the words as we read them, as we teach them. That's what's happening right now as I teach. That's what's happening for you when you open your Bible individually, privately, when you open it in a small group of people or in your marriage relationship or with a friend. You see, the Spirit of God who authored the words is re-speaking the words to you in your context and in our day in 2019, halfway around the world from where they were written. Because the word of God is alive and the word of God is on the move. It does things, it works. So now you see when we say this is the living word of God for us today, how significant that is. And by the way, after you hear that said, you know, we're, we're, we wanna say the word amen. Because in Hebrew, amen means yes, or it means it, it is so, it is true. It also means may it be so. So when you say, this is the living word of God for us today, and you say, amen, it's like, may it be the living word of God for me today that I need. I'm open to receiving it. God, do your work in the deepest part of my heart through your word. Amen. May it be. So from Hebrews 4.12, we first learn God's word's living and active with all that that entails. It's beautiful. 
It's mysterious. It's powerful. It's incredible. Second, we learn that God's word affects the whole heart. And I'm getting that straight from our text this morning. Let's take another look at Hebrews 4.12. Word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. What a vivid metaphor, almost a frightening metaphor, right? It's like, oh my goodness. Now, a two-edged sword is uh, the sharpest instrument they had in that day and time. Uh, let, me, let me show you what a, a two-edged sword is. You, you know, y'all know what this looks like. You can picture it. I, I brought this up here mostly just because I wanted to be able to do this right here. Ching! <laughs> now, I have no idea how to wield a sword, okay? So if you guys are trained, anyone trained in the room, just, you don't have to laugh at me. This one is not sharp, which is good so I don't hurt myself. But it demonstrates the point. Now you think about how, how much more effective a two-edged sword is than a one-edged sword. If you're in a battle, if you're in a fight, with this one, I can go both ways. I can cut right and cut left. Also, when I stab this way, it's gonna go in much more easily because it's gonna be sharp on both sides. It's gonna slice right through. This is the sharpest instrument they had at that time. Now, you know, the Roman sword would have been a little bit shorter than this. That would have looked a little bit different, but you get the idea. What's interesting about this context that that the writer of Hebrews is saying it's like a two-edged sword. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. He's not using it in the context of war. If you read the words to follow, he's essentially saying, and the sword is turned against you. It better not be the context of battle, of war, of death. There's something different going on. He's using this analogy of the two-edged sword to say it's so sharp, it'll penetrate right through you. And if it sounds frightening, it is. But I wanna, I wanna actually show you that beyond being frightening, it's actually wonderful. It's life-giving. And, and so here's another analogy. They, they didn't have one of these when, uh, when the, the writer of Hebrews was writing this, I don't believe. But I have in my little um, doctor's kit here um, a surgeon's scalpel. Now, this one is very, very sharp. I'm going to be careful with it as I talk. Now, just as that sword is sharp, the, the real version of it would be, this is also sharp. Has a very different purpose, doesn't it? This is for life, not for death. This is to cut a patient open, to heal what ails them, to remove a tumor, to reconnect things that should be connected, to bring about healing and wholeness. This is an instrument of life. And in the context of Hebrews 4.12, that's a great analogy of the word of God. Why does the word of God pierce us? Because there's something inside of us at the deepest level, beyond the joints and the marrow, all the way in our heart the scripture says, that needs to be healed, that needs to be brought back to life. God's intention through his word that is alive and active, his intention is to do deep work in you. Like a surgeon who says, I wanna restore you to health, but to do so, I have to cut you open so that I can expose the deepest most intimate, most covered parts of you and do my work there. God's word is an instrument, the instrument he uses to dig down into the, quote, thoughts and intentions of your heart. 
Who can know your thoughts but God alone? Who can know your intentions? It's one thing to do good works. It's another thing to do good works from the right motives. <laughs> you ever done something, man, for your friend or a wife or a mom or dad? And you're like, it's just, it's coming from a selfish place. The word of God would reveal all of that, you see, but it would reveal it in order to help you, in order to save you. I'm gonna ask if we can put the image of the heart back on the screen. And I wanna remind us, every time we see this word heart, how rich this picture is in scripture. Your heart is the core you, it's the inner person. We talk about it this way, fellowship. It's your thoughts, your choices, your desires, and your emotions. And, and in that place, in the sacred place, if you think about it this way, of your heart, the word of God would wish to go to work there. And what work would it do? To give you a heart transplant. To change you from the inside out. What's interesting about these four things is they're all internal even your choices are internal until you express them. In fact, no one can see any of this until it's expressed through words or through actions or your activity expressed. All this is internal, you see. The only thing other people can see is what you express on the outside, but God himself and his word would cut down through all of your appearances, all of your facade, everything that's on the surface and do the good work of healing in the deepest parts of you. God's word is living and active and God's word affects the whole heart. It's inside out work, not the other way around. So what? What are we gonna do with these truths from Hebrews 4.12. I've purposely gotten to the so what part of the message earlier than normal because there's some important application that I want to bring out from this. What would it look like for our church to be even more word-centered? Maybe a better question is what would it look like for us as a people, individuals, families, friends, groups, workers, moms and dads, brothers and sisters, to be more word-centered. Well, because God's word affects the whole heart, we must engage God's word with our whole hearts. That's the big idea from this morning's message, because God's word affects the whole heart. We must engage it with our whole hearts. Well, how do we do that? What does it look like? Glad you asked. That's what's next in my notes. Now, here's what this means. It means we learn God's word, we love God's word, and we live God's word. Those are the three things. We learn it, we love it, we live it. And I want to see how, how those correspond with the heart. You see, learning God's word happens in your mind. Your thoughts are going to engage in that. Living God's word happens with your choices, your expression. But down beneath, we call it kind of beneath the line, kind of the lower parts of your heart, your, your, your emotions and your desire. That's where your affections are. That's where your love is. What does it look like to love God's word with your emotions, with your desires down there? 
Now, these are the three things that I want us to focus on, and I'll touch on each one just for a few minutes briefly. Let's start first that upper left. What does it mean to learn God's word? Maybe this is the easiest to understand. It comes, well, I, I know what that means. Here's how I'd say it this morning. Individually, we want to encourage all of us at fellowship, encourage and equip us to engage God's word with our minds more to know how to study the Bible, to know what it means. We're gonna be working on this. In fact, there's a whole part of our, our strategy here called your walk. You know, there are four things we do around here. Your church, your group, your walk, and your world. Your walk is your individual walk with God. And the focus there is your prayer life and your Bible engagement. And over the next 12 months, we're gonna have opportunities to equip you and, and allow you to express your walk with God and learn how to dive into the scriptures in a more significantly way. Not just to be a smarter Christian, but so that your theology can in, impact your whole heart, you see. That's how it works. We're gonna learn God's word. So that's individually, we're gonna equip you. What about corporately? We will continue to make God's word central in our worship services and in every ministry of Fellowship Bible Church. Because remember, it's an expression of God's presence and a primary means of his activity. The word of God better be central in all that we do. So it's not just our calibrating point and our guiding instrument. It is that for sure, but there's also life in it, life for us. And if we're gonna help people find wholehearted life in Jesus, it's gonna have a lot to do with God's word. Uh, I wanna let you know about a, a small but fairly significant change that we're gonna make and that is we're gonna change the translation we use, Lloyd and I use, when we teach on Sunday mornings. We're gonna go from the New American Standard Bible to the English Standard Version. Now, it's actually not a big change because of all the translations out there, and we have an incredible amount of great translations in modern English. These two are the closest to each other. They're almost identical so you're thinking, well, why bother to change? I'll tell you that in a, in a minute. They're, they're identical because both of them are word-for-word -word translations. That doesn't mean they're better necessarily than other translations, but a word-for-word -word translation tries as best as it can to make a one-to-one -one correspondence between the Hebrew word and the English word or the Greek word and the English word. So these two translations are almost identical, but there's a couple of little differences that are enough that we felt we believe it's time for us to start teaching from the ESV regularly rather than the New American Standard Bible. And I wanna explain why that is. Primary difference between the two, although it's small, is the ESV is just a bit more fluid and a little bit less wooden. ESV sounds just a little bit more like natural conversation, what you'd hear day in, day out, even holding to a literal word-for-word -word translation. That, that's a plus, that's a bonus. Uh, along those lines, the ESV has fewer archaic words, words that have kind of fallen out of use, has fewer of those than the New American Standard, which is an older translation. ESV is more recent, and it, and it reflects that a bit. Let me give you a few examples from recent sermons. I'm not gonna spend a lot of time on this, but some, some of you would be interested to know this matters. James 5.19 was two weeks ago. Remember we talked about this? NASB says, my brethren. ESV says, my brothers. Just a, a, a more common word. We don't say brethren very much in, anymore. James 2.25, so a month or two ago, NASB, Rahab the harlot, 
It's not a word we use much anymore. ESV, Rahab the prostitute. Same idea, just communicates it in a bit more of a context that's familiar to us. Um, Going back to Ecclesiastes, there were many of these in Ecclesiastes. In fact, when Lloyd and I were teaching through Ecclesiastes, we started talking about this because time after time, we found ourselves retranslating some things that were harder to connect. And more often than not, we would retranslate using the ESV, not the NASB. One example was Ecclesiastes 10.16. NASB, woe to you, O land whose king is a lad. I don't use that word very often. I don't know about you, lad. ESV, woe to you, O land when king is a child. You know, lad, child instead of lad, prostitute instead of harlot, brothers instead of brethren. Small little changes. Why bother? Why does it even matter? Listen, we want to teach the word in a way that's as accurate and clear as possible so that religious and non-religious people alike, and we have both in the audience, praise God, are able to hear God's word in a way that helps it come to life, understand it, and come to life for them. Uh, If you're interested, there's a table in the arcade that has some of the great study Bibles and other resources that are in the ESV translation. Another reason why we're switching is there are literally 10 times as many great references and tools and study Bibles in ESV than there are in NASB. So it'll help us as a congregation have more tools in our toolbox. And that's a big bonus. Why does this all really matter? I just spent four or five minutes on it because we're a word-centered church. We take the word very seriously. We're gonna teach it word for word. So those two translations both do that well, but we also wanna help people find wholehearted life in Jesus and we want as few barriers as possible in the way we hear the word in a context that brings it to life for us. So learn God's word. That's gonna happen in all kinds of ways in addition to the Sunday service at Fellowship. Let's move to the second one. Love God's word. This one is a little harder for people. It's like, well, I don't love God's word. I can't make myself love God's word. Throughout the Bible, the Hebrew people had a a fascinating relationship with the word of God. They not only learned it, but they loved it. And the love of God's word um, over time caused them to to get this label, a people of the word. I kind of want to co-opt that for us a little bit. A people of the word. I love that phrase. Uh, Their love of God's word is primarily expressed in their poetry. So you think about David, a lot of David's Psalms reference how much he loves God's word. In fact, Psalm 119, which we're not positive is from David, but tradition holds it was. The longest Psalm, in fact, the longest chapter of the Bible, 176 verses. Everyone references God's word. And most of them are about how much the author loves the word of God. Listen to a few excerpts. My heart stands in awe of your words. I rejoice at your word like one who finds great riches. Great peace have those who love your law. My soul keeps your testimonies. I love them exceedingly. Does that sound like the way that you think about God's word? Probably not. Not for me much of the time. You and I will never love God's word until we recognize in it God's presence and God's activity. Until we see that these words from God are words of life, living, active, penetrating the whole heart so that we would be renewed, we would be restored, we would have life. Don't you want that which will give you life? 
Until you see that, you're never gonna love God's word. Secondly, you'll never love God's word until you find in it the one who is himself the word incarnate. Jesus Christ. At the right moment of redemptive history, this word of God took on flesh. Arms that were stretched out, hands that were pierced, blood that was spilt, flesh. Why? Out of love. Jesus is the word. Jesus is the literal embodiment of God's presence on earth and God's work in earth. Therefore, the words of this book are his words, not just the red letter ones. Every word finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. So this is why we read the Bible, to encounter Jesus, to encounter Christ, to get to know him, to meet him, but then over time to get to know him better, to find the life of Christ being grown up in us through the Holy Spirit that indwells us. By the way, this is why the cross is so important in the center of the heart, the way we draw that. You know, it's, it's quite convenient. You divide the, the heart into four quadrants, there's a cross at the center. <laughs> Jesus is at the center. That heart transplant you get through the word of God, the word puts the spirit of Christ right there in your heart. You get a new heart, a heart of flesh, no longer a heart of stone, according to the scriptures. Uh, think of it this way. Your heart doesn't long for a text. Your heart longs for a love relationship with a person. So to the degree that you don't love God's word, you're, you're, you're not seeing in it fully a relationship with the person who is the word enfleshed. He's the person your heart longs for. He's the person every text ultimately points to. He is God's presence. He is God's work embodied in this God-man, Jesus Christ. So I've got to wrap this up, but we learn God's word. We love God's word. This happens over time. You fall in love with it. Your, your emotions and your desires are stirred by the spirit as you engage the scripture. And then finally, we're going to live God's word. If we learn it only, or even if we just learn it and love it, but don't live it, how will we help other people find wholehearted life in Jesus? I, I believe this with the core of my being, that what our society today needs more than anything else is a group of people who will put flesh on the word of God for them. Who won't just quote it in judgment, but will embody it in love. Who does that sound like? The one we follow. So you literally follow Jesus by enfleshing the word of God, embodying the word of God, bringing the word of God to life, making it visible. Take these things, learn them, love them, and then live them, express them for people to see. That's the only way that our, that our culture, our friends, our family are gonna find wholehearted life in Jesus is if we're Jesus to them. How are we Jesus to them? By embodying his word right in front of them. So here's what it looks like for us to be a word-centered church. As simple as I can say it, we will learn God's word, we will come to love God's word, and we will live God's word. Let me pray for us to that end. Father, by your spirit, may we be a word-centered people. 
of people who learn your word, dedicate ourselves to that, spend time engaging our minds, not shy away from the work and the discipline it takes to learn your word, but may we also be a people who come to love your word. May we see in it life. May we come to love your word because it expresses your presence and it embodies your work. And most of all, may we come to love your word because we love the one who is the word embodied. And finally, Father, may we learn to live your word. May we embody it ourselves. May we, in the words of Psalm 119, say, incline our hearts to your testimonies. Give us life in your ways, for we delight in them. Would these words of that psalm be made true in our church? And may we, most of all, find in your word the living word himself. May we love him. May we follow him. May we center our lives on him because it is in his name that we pray.